Queer Relation Tips, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. We can all just take one word, for instance, just the word deference. You know, deference is not a respected male trait. Men see deference as weakness. And when I'm speaking to groups, I'll say, um, you know, the first step of deference is to be an ally. And that means being fully supportive of the woman in your world, saying, I'm here, I'm going to use the power I have to support you. So, but that's actually not deference. Deference is to take the next step to become an accomplice, or if that word doesn't strike your fancy, an assistant, to allow the women to tell you what they need you to do. And the pushback on that is consistent, to say the least. They don't want to, you know, yeah, I'll think about being an ally, but whoa, wait, wait, you want the women to tell me what I should be doing? Uh-huh, yeah, I want you to work in their direction. That actually is deference. Welcome to Queer Relation Tips. In today's episode, we welcome Paula Williams, the brilliant speaker with a background as a radio show host, college professor, public speaking coach, trans psychotherapist, TV show producer, CEO, clergy, and way more. She holds a doctorate and has millions of views among her four TED Talks and is about to release a brilliant book entitled As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and Patriarchy After I Transitioned. Her and I discuss the histories of trans women, the roles men have played in initiating and sustaining patriarchy, and the effects it has on women. She is a well of knowledge, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's take a listen. When we were thinking about Women's History Month, I think one of the biggest things that we can contribute you know, as a podcast from Queer Relationships is the idea of trans women and women history, uh, a topic that's often not included, I would say. And I think it's a very vital part, um, almost like a forgotten population in a very important conversation. What part of being a trans woman do you feel like is missing from the discourse of women's history? What's not being spoken about. I think one of the biggest areas where we still are in our infancy is medical care, uh, both in availability and even in people who specialize in it. You know, you you get a blood test as a trans woman at your own peril, mm -hmm. or as a trans person, because. Some things have to be calculated as a male. Some things have to be calculated as a female. And there are no trans-specific reference intervals. Uh, there, I mean, that needs to exist. Mm -hmm. There needs to be that, at the very least, mm -hmm. is trans-specific reference intervals. You know, I, I'm relatively smart, so I can figure out a good bit of stuff. But even I um, somehow had missed that our hemoglobin and red blood cell count uh, has to be calculated as a female and drops 12% post-transition. Mm -hmm. And so I had both of my family doctors, one of whom specializes in trans stuff, who missed that. And, you know, they were ready to send me to a GI guy to see if I had a colon bleed mm -hmm. somewhere. And then... You know, once we all came to, well, I'm the one who discovered it. 
we ended up with uh nope yeah everything is fine mm-hmm. that's got to be very frustrating yeah the, the other zgfr which is um kidney functioning and uh that one is um has to be calculated as a male so mm-hmm. if it's calculated as a female it says your kidneys aren't working mm-hmm. it's calculated as a male you're with, well within the normal parameters alkaline phosphatase is another it drops like a like a rock uh, once you're on hormones for trans women it doesn't change at all for trans men so yeah there's there's a bunch of stuff like that that i think mm-hmm. is way way off i think the other the other major concerns I've got right now are the entire debate over the cisgender female experience and the trans uh, experience, even the controversy over the use of the term female and male. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. One of the, the thoughts that I have is, um, I think related to your book, which I'm very excited to read, but the idea of, I guess it stems from one of your Ted talks, but the idea of the experience of being female and learning so many different things. I was at your first Ted talk and I like the joke about why are the pockets of women's clothing so small? And that's one small thing that I think you've probably encountered. Um, and I think as a trans woman, you have a very important narrative to contribute to women's history. Yeah, it's almost all of my public speaking. Mm-hmm. That's almost all of it. And I did do a trans-specific event, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Over the last 18 months, all the rest of it has been on the uh, the differences in experiencing life as a man and as a woman mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and there's two chapters of the book committed uh, that are that are committed to it mm-hmm. yeah i think that there's so much to be understood by men cisgender men gay men in terms of the experience of a woman and i think that helping understand and being educated in this way could shift the future of women yeah. in the culture and I think that makes us reflect on the history very differently. Yep. If we could do the work and see fruit from this education and um, seeing things change, what do you think, how would the future of women be different than its history? Well, I think it's a massive amount of work that has to be done. And I believe that it's probably commensurate with the kind of work we have to do in the United States to deal with systemic racism. Mm-hmm. You know, the entire world, not just the Western world, but the entire world has been built to the backs of women because it's patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Society to society, society to society. There aren't very many matriarchal societies. There's a handful, but not, not many. The work we have to do, I think, has to start individually and via narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been asked to be in an interesting group next month with, um, I guess, about 25 showrunners and writers for television series in Hollywood and um, a number of transgender people. 
I think about 25 of us in the conversation. And the, uh, the focus, I think that they're expecting is to focus on trans-specific issues. And I, I have already said in what I said to them that I, I think actually the best stories are stories where being trans is incidental. And the major part of the story is your experience as a woman mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or experience as a man and how massively different that is mm -hmm. from what it was uh, in your previous gender mm -hmm. or identified gender. Absolutely. I'm imagining that this just has to oftentimes leave you feeling ridiculously angry. No. Um, I think the main reason for that is because I'm extremely aware of how much of my privilege I brought with me hmm. and how many decades I had that privilege and how I am still living off of that privilege, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so it is surprising more than anything else, but it's not been shocking there are things that have been shocking mm -hmm. but that's not one of them okay yeah i would imagine this the surprises are also maybe uh empathy provoking having empathy in a different way oh my god yeah mm -hmm. i mean that has been a it's been a uh a massive shift i i say in in my memoir there are so many times i've said to kathy I'm sorry, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I had the opportunity to spend a couple of hours um, with my former executive assistant for 20 years. And it was actually a good conversation. She said, you you were better than you give yourself credit for as a as a white man. But she said, yeah, there were there were blind spots. And I had to say the same thing to her. I'm I'm sorry, particularly because she's a woman of color. And I said, I don't think I was sensitive either to uh, the fact that you're a woman or that you are a brown woman and how much more difficult that was for you in a, a particular culture that was very, very white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You seem to have a very strong sensitivity to inequities and, and how it, the experience of them affects someone i do you um it doesn't take long being socialized as a as a woman and i'm i'm rather fortunate i think as a transgender woman in that in most settings in which i work people have no idea i'm transgender and so i'm i my experience is a little more typical of a cisgender woman than it is of a, a lot of trans women and the amount of confidence I've lost in just seven years to me is striking. Mm -hmm. It's like if if I had um, decades of that, I'm not sure how much I'd believe in myself at all. Mm -hmm. I apologize for myself a lot more than I used to. I question whether I know what I in fact know that I know mm -hmm. uh, as much as I used to. I think still the biggest frustrating thing is being treated as if you're stupid, as if you just don't know what you know. 
And I think that's a part of women's history that we don't talk about this month. It is not often no. the part of women's history that is discussed. My first TED Talk, I have heard from more than in all seven continents, including uh, Antarctica, thanking me for validating their experience. And I don't go through a week. Uh, today I had three People contact me. One message me on Facebook, or send a message request. One on um, LinkedIn, and one via email, thanking me for that first TED talk. Mm -hmm. That's typical. Mm -hmm. uh, that today's were from England, Germany, and um, yeah, another country. I can't remember which one. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting seeing the difference in different parts of the world. Uh, women in Scandinavia say, yeah, it's probably not as, not as bad here as it is for you there. Um, and in Southern Europe, um, it's very much, oh, yeah, it's it's uh, much worse here than it is for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine I was lucky enough to spend some time in Rome and even being in a gay bar was a, one of the most gendered experiences I've ever had. Just so much in my experience, toxic masculinity that it was almost honestly kind of frightening. I didn't spend much time there and I, I can imagine how those genders, the gender roles are playing out. And I've, I've heard a lot from women in Italy, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, uh, particularly, and then in, also in Central and South America, mm -hmm. about how just horrible it is. Mm -hmm. You can imagine. Yeah. I often think as a clinician about the aggregate history of women feeling uh, like they have to be small or apologize for their presence and kind of the psychological effects of patriarchy. One of the things that struck me the most personally in, in my kind of attention to the patriarchy that I sustain is the psychological patriarchy. It's the, the psychology that subtly says male dominance is appropriate or it's right, and it's that sneaky, implicit knowing we use to calculate and make decisions to assess and I was shocked to see how implicit and how effective that psychological patriarchy was operating even in my own internal narratives. Well, you know, just take one word for instance, just the word deference. Mm -hmm. You know, deference is not a respected male trait. Mm -hmm. Men see deference as weakness. And when I'm speaking to groups, I'll say to men, I'm speaking tomorrow to a group that's 95% men in Canada. And I'll say, um, you know, the first step of deference is to be an ally. And that means being fully supportive of the woman in your world, saying, I'm here, I'm going to use the power I have to support you. So, but that's actually not deference. Deference is to take the next step to become an accomplice, or if that word doesn't strike your fancy, an assistant, to allow the women to tell you what they need you to do. Mm -hmm. And the pushback on that 
is um, consistent, to say the least. Oh, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. They don't want to, you know, yeah, I'll think about being an ally, but whoa, wait, wait, you want, you want the women to tell me what I should be doing? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want you to work at their direction. That actually is deference. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm thinking of a book, um, The New Rules of Marriage by Terence Real, where he says that men have to stop seeing the requests of women as controlling tactics and see them as legitimate requests for men to grow. Yeah, that's really well put. I I really... Yeah, I, I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. I think that it's almost, you know, if the man on a on a, a thermometer was at 100 degrees and just boiling hot, and then he slides down to 70 degrees, and he says, look, I made some improvements, but maybe the women in our world are asking for us to actually be at 10 degrees. Maybe that's where we're functional. I think that that's actually true. I, I think that there's, well, as I've said in, in my first and third TED Talks, there's just no way that a well-educated white man could understand how much the world's tilted in his favor. Mm-hmm. You know, he there's no way he can understand that he got a head start, that he began life closer to the finish line. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we work hard, but um, but that doesn't mean that it was as hard for us as it is for others. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it's just a, it's an unfortunate reality. You know, a, a white man walks into a room, he, he goes into a business meeting, he doesn't have to give up part of himself at the door. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't have to do any code shifting. Mm-hmm. You know, that everything in that meeting has been designed for him. Mm-hmm. And so he walks into that meeting, didn't have to shift his use of language, the tone of his voice, uh, the accent with which he speaks, uh, nothing. Mm-hmm. And he's the only one who gets that privilege. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's very frustrating when people like Jared Baird, I believe is his name, the coddling of the, I can't remember the name of his book, but to say as a white man that privilege doesn't exist in the world is, I think, proof of what you're saying here. It's is that the coddling, the coddling yes. of the American mind? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's um, um, and I think that's Jonathan Haidt, and I think that was written with Jonathan Haidt, okay. if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, it's um, to me, not nearly as interesting as his first book, which I think was right on point. Um, uh, the righteous mind. Uh, this one missed the mark completely, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, again, as a clinician, to think about a history where women were free to show up, where the world enjoyed, I like to say this word, enjoyed their spices, and saw female or, or women's spices as necessary to the recipe, this world would... I mean, obviously, it would look so different. I think it has to happen, or I think we potentially lose the species. You mm-hmm. know, you, you take the 
sociobiologist Edward O. Wilson and and his work, or or um, about eusocial species, which is based on the Hamilton rule, that uh, that there are nine species that are tribal species, but one of them has evolved to believe an enemy is necessary for the tribe's survival. Mm -hmm. And where no enemy exists, they create one. Mm -hmm. um, it's the male of our species that does that, not mm -hmm. the female. Mm -hmm. uh, women don't start wars. Uh, women do start catfights. I think mm -hmm. one of the things that's been... I've had more conflict with a woman, with women as a woman in seven years than I had with women as a man in 60. Um, there, there is a lot of competition between women, but uh, but they don't start wars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I think another beautiful gift of women is emotionality. Of course, as a therapist, I put emphasis on this. But to watch incredibly emotionally wise and loving women in my life and to see what they taught me and how they taught me I think is an example of emotional intimacy that petrifies most men. And I think I think so. I think so. You know, the myth is that that women are more emotional at work than men, and yet the truth is men are far more emotional at work than women. The problem is the emotion the men show is anger. Mm -hmm. It's really the only one mm -hmm. that our culture gives them permission to express. Mm -hmm. And of course that truncates the healthier emotions, though anger is also a healthy emotion. And um, women have, are more, more holistic. You know, part of that is that the average male brain, uh, if such a thing exists, tends to fire within hemispheres, not across them. Whereas the average female brain fires across hemispheres. So there's a whole lot more holistic thinking going on, right and left brain together processing information and experience, sensory experience. Whereas for men, you know, men do have neurons that fire across hemispheres, but it's kind of like trying to get across Manhattan, uh, press town in Manhattan at, at rush hour, and not, mm -hmm. not, not much happens. <laughs> you know, that, every, girls, everything no. is either on the east side or the west side. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's not, not a lot of crossover in, in the male brain. One of the interesting discoveries of transgender people both trans women and trans men, pre-hormonal treatment, is that our brains uh, tend to function about halfway between male and female. Hmm. That on functioning fMRI studies, which of course there's some question as to how effective they are, but on functioning fMRI studies, they've determined that that our brains pre-hormonal treatment uh, never were uh, all that male or all that female. They were they were very much in the middle. And then once you're on hormonal treatment, then you tend to go toward the uh, gender with which you identify. Mm -hmm. And certainly I find my um, ability to feel and express emotion is far greater as a woman than it was as a man. Um, but even at that, there are plenty of times my editor in the writing of my um, memoir uh, my editor Michelle at Simon and Schuster would would have to say to me, um, "I don't, I don't, I don't care what you thought about this. I want, I need to know what, how you felt about this." Hope you're enjoying the show so far. 
I wanted to take a moment to let you know about a unique opportunity Queer Relationships is offering. Over the past 10 years, I've sat with people and couples and walked them through some pretty difficult times. We all want thriving lives, but creating the love lives and relationships we crave is a journey and Queer Relationships wants to help you on that journey. We're accepting inquiries from those who want to come on the show and sit with the therapist and gain some insight into their struggles. Whether that's helping you find peace with your identity, ways to emotionally handle an unsupportive or critical family, help getting past roadblocks in your sexual relationships, or maybe ways to save your relationship that you fear is headed for disaster. We're here to help. For more information about how to become a guest, visit www.iamclinic.org forward slash queer hyphen relationships. That's iamclinic.org forward slash queer hyphen relationships. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. A piece of women's history that I am really um, grateful for. And I think it's how you felt as a trans child, a woman living life through a male body. That's another part of history that I think we don't really talk about or consider maybe often. Uh, I believe that's true. And I think that, you know, it's one of the reasons we see so many um, trans kids who end up with serious suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's still no, no diagnosis in the DSM-5 that has more suicide attempt attempts than gender dysphoria, but the, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's such an issue with kids, you know, trans teens whose parents are not supported have 13 times greater likelihood of attempting suicide than your peers. And of course the suicide numbers are headed up for teens, period. Mm-hmm. So that ain't good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I have nowhere to go. Um, I don't think there's any trans child who has anywhere to go um, if they grow up in the evangelical world. Mm-hmm. You know, today there's so much more freedom. And For I sure. think it's, it's a much healthier mm-hmm. um, environment. Mm-hmm. Still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. If, of course, you don't have to, but do you mind sharing how that felt for you? Nowhere to go. Uh, I, I feel like I was, um, you know, as I said in that very first TED Talk, it, when you talk to one transgender person, you talk to exactly one transgender person. In my case, I was not that trans kid who um, says if I can't live as a girl, I don't want to live at all. So I had zero suicidal ideation. For me, it was a, it was a disappointment to realize there was no gender fairy and I didn't get to choose my gender, which is what I thought. Mm-hmm. But I didn't hate being a boy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was just about as comfortable with boys as I was with girls. It didn't much matter to me who I played with. If I was playing house, I always took the role of a girl. And probably, I don't know, not every day, maybe every other day, I'd pray when I went to bed, please let me wake up a girl. But, you know, it became more a 
mantra than anything else didn't become a huge problem until puberty mm-hmm. and then it was god awful mm-hmm. yeah i can to have testosterone take over your being when every part of your brain is telling you that it's a it's an unnatural substance mm-hmm. is awful mm-hmm. and to not then have estrogen uh, entering your body in that same time frame. It's just, it's awful. Mm-hmm. It, that was truly awful. I also was a very privileged uh, white boy uh, living in the right part of town, in the right schools, with the right opportunities. So even then, it was clouded over. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a 16 years old and a rock and roll disc jockey at a at a commercial radio station. You know, I was doing play-by-play of local basketball games. I, I was interviewing our congressman. So I, my privilege, I think, even then, stopped me from really entering significant depression. For me, the depression didn't start until I was an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think... think I ever had any serious suicidal ideation until uh, until I was. Uh, actually in my late 50s mm-hmm. sure yeah when it was too heavy yeah yeah so much powerlessness in the stories of trans folks there is and i hear from them every week and i i'm a public enough figure that i hear from them i'm just not in a position to be able to help mm-hmm very many of them. Occasionally something tugs at me and I'll have a phone conversation with one. But it is, uh, it's every week that I hear from someone calling up, please help. Mm -hmm. And I send them, thank God, to any one of a number of places where there's a lot of support at this point. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I'm working with the LGBTQ faith uh, committee with uh, the Biden administration. And that to me is uh, it's an important part of the, the work I do because I think we've really got to um, reverse what we're going to see happen in pretty much every Republican state house at this point. Mm-hmm. The one area where they've decided to push hard is on uh, transgender issues, particularly kids with transgender uh, sports. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just going to have to fight hard against that and, and try to get the Equality Act passed. I, I, I don't think we can make it as long as the filibuster rule stays where it is now, mm-hmm. which is likely. But, you know, I mean, I, it, we need it passed. Mm-hmm. The Senate's going to be the obstacle. Right. Yeah. I just think of all of those little girls living life in a body that isn't in alignment with who they are. And that story is an important part of women's history, too. It is that, um, and there's such a disappointing response of radical feminism to the reality of a trans woman's experience. They claim that it's just another way in which the patriarchy is trying to take over the world of women. And it's like, my God, if if you only knew what our childhood was like and 
and you know, my experience will never be the experience of a cisgender woman. I don't need to be reminded of that. I'm acutely aware of that. I don't see life in 28-day cycles. I see it linear. I don't have a uterus. I cannot give birth to children. And to have, um, to have that world, the world of radical feminism, join with the extreme evangelical right and all of their opposition to the trans community is so disappointing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so disappointing. Yeah. It's discrediting and minimizing in the least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm fortunate enough that I don't personally experience it often, occasionally, but not all that often. So I'm, I'm uh, not immune to it, but it, it doesn't affect me as much as it does others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I don't know where I'm exactly going with this next point, but I feel like it needs to be said. But to have a trans woman in the office, it's often, it, it makes me sad when some of the clients say, I feel like a fraud. I feel like a man who's playing dress up. And I, Sadly, I hear that often, and I think immediately, you've always been female. It's always been true, even if the physical body didn't communicate that. And I think that that's such an important piece for trans folks. I, I just think that there's a lot of liberty in that. Well, if you take a look at, you know, one of the big points of opposition to the trans community is that post-transition, you still have suicidal ideation approaching 35%. Well, first of all, that's different than suicide attempts at 41%. But second, why? Why do you have that? And you look at it, 92% of transgender people are happy in their new body. Um, so let's isolate the 8% that aren't happy transitioning genders. Mm -hmm. And look at just that 8%, 96% of them actually like their new body. They don't like the way they're being treated by society. Mm -hmm. Look at all the reasons for post-transition suicidal ideation, they're related to loss of family, friends, jobs, social status. They're related to the inability to pass, mm -hmm. and the worst, to the internalization of transphobia. Mm -hmm. And none of us are immune to that. Right. And I find myself, and this is, uh, this is not good, but I find myself uh, having to strengthen myself when I'm going to have lunch with someone who's trans, uh, for fear that it'll be one of the uh, occasions when where I'm clearly identified as trans. If I've identified myself as trans, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. But to be read as trans, which generally doesn't happen to me unless I am in uh, a group. And I actually have to, uh, I have to strengthen myself for those occasions. Mm -hmm. I, I have to get ready for that because it takes quite a toll 
quite at all. Mm -hmm. Because you're you are constantly getting this world that says you're not really who you think you are. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that that's one of the most important things you can do with trans clients is to acknowledge that they will always uh, the gender that they identify with, not mm -hmm. the one in their birth. Right. Exactly. And I, I, I do want to clarify that I get sad in those conversations because the psychological patriarchy is so powerful that it's robbing us of understanding who we truly are and, and allowing that to feel comfortable. Yeah, I, um, that might be an area where I, I choose to stay in a little bit of denial because if I fully took it in, there might be a lot more anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think that psychological patriarchy in many ways is the pillar of homophobia and transphobia, but also internalized transphobia and internalized homophobia. How could it not be? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember one of my friends who worked for an airline um, who, when she first met me in Sala, she said, why? Mm. You haven't made as a man. And I, I said, Cindy, um, but I wasn't one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her sentiments there are, are just so profound Yeah. in terms of her history as a woman in a patriarchal it, world. It says so much about her. Yes. And in her case, she is, I would say, an alpha woman. And, you know, nobody ever questioned my alpha personality when I was a man. Uh, now, my alpha personality is quite a threat to both the men and the women in the room. And it's like, really? Seriously? You know, if you, you take a look at um, uh, Finland, Norway, Iceland, Germany, Taiwan and, and New Zealand. All of those did very well in the first phase of coronavirus. All of them also have a woman as head of state. Mm -hmm. All of them are also strong alpha leaders. Strong alpha women tend to have those that rare combination of great strength with great confidence coupled with great humility. Mm -hmm. You don't see that as often with cisgender men. You don't see that. Um, great, you, you see great confidence, you don't see it coupled with great humility. And you know, again, that's because that's not honored in patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I referenced this earlier, and you've heard me speak about this, but I think when we consider the history of women, when we think of true equity, relational equity, 
it's saying you know patriarchy made a a decent meal but in order for this meal to be perfected we need the ingredients that women provide otherwise we're still missing something you know I mean, take a look at um you know it's it's horribly sad that we are the only one of the eusocial species the tribal species that believes an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive and where no enemy exists we create one and what we've discovered over the last decade and particularly over the last year is that as a species we prefer our created enemies to the natural ones the other eusocial species gather together as tribes to fight natural enemies they defeat them life goes on but we have two incredibly awful national, uh, natural enemies right now in climate change and COVID-19. And yet we find that the male of our species is uh, far more committed to fighting the enemies we've created ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you take a look at just those six countries, for instance, with their strong woman leader. And you take a look at how well those countries handled the first wave. And then you take a look at the three countries that were spectacularly and tragically awful, uh, the United Kingdom and um, the United States and Brazil. And you look at the lack of formation in their leaders, uh, not just the narcissism, but the, the toxic masculinity of their leaders. And hundreds of thousands of people died and are dying because of the difference between the two i mean it's right there for us to see mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right six countries that have done extremely well and three that have been spectacularly awful mm -hmm. right patriarchy at its worst mm -hmm. yes for sure one of the things that strikes me is and correct me if i'm wrong but kind of watching you navigate queer spaces as an alpha female and still feeling challenged it makes me very frustrated that even in queer spaces we haven't got this down you know i was in a, a, a queer meeting and a, a board meeting and one of my fellow board members uh, just said at the, uh, in the middle of a conversation, well, you're an Enneagram 8, so you understand these things. And I said, actually, I'm not. I'm a true with a strong three wing. I don't have an ounce of eight. I mean, I, I mean, well, of course, everybody has all, all nine, but, but my, my eight is not, no, but that is how um, that was what was projected onto me mm -hmm. by this person because he had seen my three in action, which was wanting to get things done that needed to be done at that moment. That is something that happened in blue space. There's, there's one story I tell all the time that happened in queer space where um i was in a meeting and i i said uh we were talking about somebody giving a keynote speech and 
I said, well, they, they don't have a lot of history doing that. If you, But if you want them to give a keynote, I'd be happy to coach them. And a powerful white gay man in the room said, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we get a real coach? Oh. And I, I, uh, I waited to see if any women spoke up on my behalf. They didn't, because women don't do this. But what I wanted to say was, um, well, I've done four TED Talks, three that were recorded. I'm a TED Speakers ambassador. I've coached TED Speakers, TEDx Speakers. I've taught speech in three universities, two in the United States, one in Europe. What part of that doesn't make me a real coach? Mm -hmm. But I didn't say anything because, you know, then you're just that many. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. and it was a, a gay white man with a powerful impact who said it. And a wonderful guy. I mean, I, I have a, a ton of respect for him. But, you know, one of the things you discover as a woman is you're, you're not judged in the aggregate body of your work. Mm -hmm. You're an expert in one, one area. And his assumption was I was an expert in theology. So how could I, in fact, also uh, be an expert in um, public speaking? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I wanted to, to mention this queer space because gay men don't get any pass. <laughs> Well, yeah, honestly, oh, I'm so sorry, Isaac, but honestly, they're often worse. I was, yes. Well, I think that's almost, I'm just hypothesizing here or using some of my clinical experience, but I think that's the internalized homophobia that needs to use mm -hmm. this patriarchy as a way of scapegoating to assuage their own insecurities. And say what you may... In a healthy male-female marriage, um, the guy gets a lot of doses of, what, what did you say? What are you thinking? You know, I, I got 40 years of marriage of Kathy saying to me, oh, no, 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 don't you dare. And, um, you know, unmarried or not partnered with a female, men aren't getting that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so some of that is just an honest social lack of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they need to, to have a close enough relationship to mothers or sisters or uh, close female friends to be able to say, what am I not getting? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still feel like I probably owe it to this person to... Um, to say, do you remember when you did that? Because I do use it uh, as an illustration. It's in my book. Uh, it, it was striking to me when it happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. The, the other side of the queer space is there can be a hesitance in the lesbian community to embrace trans women. I've experienced it, but not often. I've, I've been more often embraced by the lesbian community. Mm -hmm. And on the whole, my experience with gay men has been positive. Mm -hmm. But if I were to compare the misogyny I've experienced, um, yeah, I'd say white gay men are a little bit worse than white straight men. Yeah. In my personal experience. Wow. 
that man, that may just be because I'm around more of them. Or, <laughs> or we have some work to do. Or, yeah, I mean, I want to be as generous as I can, but I, I think that that internalized homophobia is, in fact, an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's be honest, all of us in that world have got internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia. You know, th these are th th these are not taken apart easily. Mm -hmm. For sure. Abs no, no, definitely not. Yeah. I do think, though, in light of Women's History Month, that it's important for men to acknowledge the role that patriarchy and psychological patriarchy play and to be courageous enough to set it down and to, as you said, let women teach us what they need and what needs to be done. It's interesting, my third TED Talk has not been nearly as popular as my first because in the third talk, I point blank ask men to give up power. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, the first one's had over 4 million views, and that one's had, last I checked, about 400,000. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, I'm sure there's a correlation. And it's also interesting to see that in... I, I haven't read the comments. I never look at YouTube comments because that's where the trolls went. But um, people who've looked at them said uh, that men want to turn that particular talk into a talk about class. That I really wasn't talking about my male privilege. I'm really talking about my class privilege. Well, it's true. I did have class privilege. But um, but no. No, you, you don't get to reframe it. No, absolutely not. No. Yep. We are responsible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Rewriting history takes some time. It does. And I, I said in church on Sunday that I believe it, it is ultimately very personal. I think it has to happen one man at a time. One woman at a time. And then learning deference, collaboration, compromise, open to correction, and deep listening, which men don't do well. Mm -hmm. You know, men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really thinking about this a lot this month, trying to be intentional, but looking back over my development uh, with my mom and all of the female cousins that lived with us growing up and my aunt who is my second mom, and my professional mentors, both of whom were women, um, and and really being appreciative for everything that they've taught me and then being courageous enough to let women be powerful, to let them play that powerful role in my life. Yeah, and I, I actually think you're probably about as balanced as any guy I know. And I have always assumed that that was because you had positive female role models. 
and possibly positive male role models. My father was a man who deferred to women. And I think that served me well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. He showed deference to my mother. And there was a lot of psychological turmoil there. But, um, but he showed deference to, um, to women on the whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's important. It's, it's imperative. It's not just a kind thing to do. It's the right nope. thing to do. <laughs> Until it becomes a respected male trait. Mm -hmm. Hmm. We're not ever going to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, we're 100 years from pay equity, let alone any other kind of gender equity. For sure. I think that's my intention with this series is to challenge myself to be better than the average male. <laughs> I don't want to just be average. It's the three in me, but with all sincerity. I think that's, that's completely reasonable. I think along the same lines, uh, I want to keep learning and keep being aware as a trans woman of the more privilege that I have brought with me and ways in which it finds expression. Mm -hmm. I... I want to continue to be aware of those. For instance, you know, I said men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. Um, I still interrupt others more than the average woman does. I'm very aware of it. It bothers me when I do it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of those habits that come from being a man for so long that are hard to give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awareness, and I think courage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of the most unsung stories to remember and honor in the month of March as we celebrate Women's History Month are those of trans women. First off, I applaud Paula for being conscious to voice the ways in which she benefited from privilege before she transitioned and assessing the ways it not only affected women, but also people of color. Secondly, I am so aware that during a time when we consider the histories of women in a patriarchal world, we must also consider the histories of little trans girls growing up with the fear of coming out. Those are women's histories we cannot forget. The ways in which men, overt patriarchy, and psychological patriarchy have silenced women is the same systems that have silenced trans women, potentially allowing them to feel even more fearful to assert their truth and express their realities. For the most part, the majority of people would assume I'm cisgender. I have surely had successes and privileges that have allowed me to succeed, cross barriers, and access heights I would not have had access to if people perceived me as gender nonconforming or gender nonbinary. And because the various privileges that my outward perception has afforded me, I have to acknowledge, then, the ways in which I have been part of the systemic, even if unintentional, practices of patriarchy and the rehearsals of psychological patriarchy. Paula calls us out, especially gay men, that we need to remember that we have stolen power that is not rightfully ours. We need to relinquish the perception that our power is right and acquiesce the fact that women are equally as capable, powerful, intelligent, 
and have many things to teach us, like courage, strength, and wisdom. We have to acknowledge that a team without women is no team at all, that a strategy without a woman's input is half-informed, and a culture without the influence of women contributing is nothing more than a culture standing on immature power and control. What can you learn from the women around you and their histories of pain? I promise you, you'll learn about a deeper strength, a stronger love, a mature wisdom, and a courage most men wish to possess. To all the women, trans or cis, your histories matter, and they are one of the most powerful agents we have to initiate our relational evolution. Until next time. Queer Relation Tips is a podcast sponsored by IM Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. IM Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at IM Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic. Thank you.